Addiction is a serious issue, and we take it seriously. This is Road to Recovery with Yona Bud on 640 Toronto. And welcome to the show. Thank you for joining us tonight. I will be your pilot this evening. My name is Yona Bud, and you are on the road to recovery. So buckle in, make sure you're comfortable, get comfortable in your seats and ready to go. It's going to be a bit of a journey. we got a couple hours together, lots to do, people to meet, things to talk about, and just stuff to jaw on, man. So if you feel like jawing, give me a call right here, right now, 416-870-6400 or 888-225-TALK if you're up for it. I do need someone to, te- to test my texting because I'm not sure if it's working. So I need a brave soul to text for me right now, 647 647- Four eight eight zero zero eight six. Say hi, Yona, and uh, I'll know everything is groovy and working beautifully. So, speaking of working, I have the benefit of uh, enjoying my grandchildren uh, for twenty four hours, and I know that they're listening. And uh, I want to say hi to both of them, to J and J. I don't want to use your name so people will come and find you, but say hi to you, and uh, that I love you a lot. And my granddaughter told me tonight; um, she's not quite ten, but she told me that um, she's in business and she's got a inst- an Instagram page and she's making um, beaded jewelry. She's got a setup. She says, I- I'm set up, Zadie. It's a proper program, a pro- proper business, I should say. I have a proper desk. I have uh, a letterhead and all kinds of things. So um, good for her. And uh, world watch out because this young girl is going to be just on fire as will her son, uh, as will her, <laughs> my grandson, her brother. So listen, they're going to be on fire like all the other kids going out for Halloween uh, this year. Yeah, we're allowed to do that now, right? So um, we're talking about, you know, what's going to be this year. And people are kind of like, who is this guy? Did I dial into the right station? Yeah. So you're on 640 Toronto. We're talking about the about all kinds of stuff related to, I don't know, the things that people think about all day, we think. Uh, and it's called The Road to Recovery. And I'm Yona. And uh, Come and strap yourself in and join us if you're just getting on right now. It's a lot of fun. We're learning a lot of stuff. Sometimes it's more serious than others, but for the most part, we get to chill and hang out and uh, be a uh, community for a while, right? So 416-870-6400 if you want to call me and say, like, dude, you're wasting my time. I'm going to turn to another station. Or I love the show. Anything in between works for me, too. What are they doing? So last this year, the Ontario top doctors are saying children should feel free to go door to door. Okay, so I think as soon as you say, yeah, go, they're going to go. It's not like they're holding back because they don't want to. It's because we're not letting them. So it should it should happen outdoors, of course, door to door knocking as opposed to indoor stuff. So probably not in the hallways of a, a building. Uh, if we can avoid it, take your kids to a place or let them go to a place that's got houses or townhomes or something with um, street level uh, access. Uh, and of course, if they have to be indoors for any reason, they should be wearing a mask and, and not a costume mask. Like, like if suddenly you're wearing like a Darth Vader mask over your face, as much as it looks like you're, you're in a hazmat suit and it's so cool, it's not enough to keep the, the, the droplets and stuff from potentially making you sick or you bringing it home to make somebody else sick. So you gotta get like a real mask if you're indoors. Um, don't crowd the doorsteps, not too many kids at once, and don't shout too loudly. It's my favorite one. According to Dr. Kieran Moore, she's an expert on this kind of stuff. Um, so she says, just don't yell so exuberantly. Uh, you know, like make she she says clearly, this is about how to yell for trick or treats, like trick or treat, smell my feet. Okay, so they don't want you to scream it. They just say, make sure your presence known. Make sure you get your treat. So whatever you got to do to get the treat, knock on the door, say trick or treat. 
Maybe you got to whisper it. I don't think so. But just don't scream and yell in people's faces because that's where the droplets and stuff happen. They say just as an abundance of caution, not that it's likely to lead to anything, but that's what's going on in the news. And that's what people are talking about these days. So people should also use outdoor spaces when possible. You know, try to uh, make sure wherever possible that you're with people that are vaccinated. If you're indoors and with masks outdoors, uh, w- without masks, um, you can be outdoors with masks indoors. If people aren't vaccinated, people with multiple households, some guests might be, some guests may not. We had a, t- we had a show uh, last week about how to talk to people you know, around holidays to see if they're vaccinated or not. If you can't ask the hard question, just be safe, wash your hands a lot, and wear a mask, right? You don't have to be rude, just protect yourself. If you're really uncomfortable, do what I tell my patients to do. Go home, leave, go somewhere else, plan B. I'm only too aware of the negative impacts the socialization had and can have, and the kids need to spend time with loved ones, uh, the doctor went on to say. Um, this is Dr. Moore now. And, um, yeah, what else is he saying? Get together is good for their mental and physical health and social well-being. number of recent outbreaks have been associated with weddings. Uh, a lot of yelling and screaming and singing and dancing, especially if you're going to any kind of, you know, ethnic wedding. They're, they're like, super cool. They, you know, sing and they dance and they make crazy noises. We, my wife and I went to the first... Uh, the first uh, wedding since the beginning of the pandemic for a young man that we uh, care a lot about. And um, yeah, we decided to go. We've turned down a whole bunch. Anyway, there's about 100 people had a great time. They are uh, Middle Eastern in terms of traditions and heritage. So a lot of the uh, callings and stuff and songs and rhythms and music and magnificent clothing uh, celebratory stuff that you just don't see in typical North American weddings. It was a lot of fun. Food was outrageously good too, so I had too much of that. Anyway, uh, be careful. I was comfortable. Everybody in the building had to be checked and had to show a vaccine, uh, vaccine proof of vaccine, and we'll talk to that about that in a minute here too. Proof of vaccine and so on. So just remember, smaller is better. Keep the area clean. If in doubt, stay home. These are ways to protect yourself if you're worried. Wear a mask, obviously when uh, then you're really concerned. So I want everybody to know that we are a, an, uh, an equal opportunity show. We include everybody on the road to recovery. Everybody can get aboard the bus. And um, I want to know that I want you to know this is a story that I'm going to share right now for the last four minutes we've got. Um, for all those that aren't vaxxed and for whatever reason don't have a vaccine, these are the places you can go without a vaccine passport in, in Ontario pretty much everywhere you would normally go throughout the course of a day, unless, of course, you're going to nightclubs and such at night or you're, you dine exclusively in indoor restaurants. But you can go to grocery stores, offices, salons, pharmacies, banks, churches, public washrooms, right? You can go on and on and on. Um, and, for, and no need for unvaccinated people to kick up a big storm, right? Because they're going to mandating that uh, with these new, these new things, this, this new mandate to show proof of vaccine to go into high-risk areas. But for, you know, for a lot of people, things don't change. Not a lot of people go nightclubbing. I certainly don't. Not a lot of people go to indoor restaurants. I don't do it frequently. Well, it didn't, didn't change my life as long as I could order food, pick up food, and so on. Uh, but there's a, a, a non-exhaustive list of places you can still go without needing to download, um, you know, or display your vaccine, right? Restaurant patios, takeout joints, medical clinics and pharmacies, uh, places, any place that you need to use a restroom, parks, retail stores, the horse track, if you're into that, barbershops and salons. Remember, we couldn't do that for a while. Everyone started to look uh, not their best, so, you know, so they thought. I thought a lot of people looked really cool with their beards and long hair and the women who didn't color their hair. They thought it looked really nice and natural and kind of, uh, yeah, kind of real. Anyway, place of worship. You could, you know, go to a place of worship for sure. Um, you don't need to be masked. Literally anywhere if you're under the age of 12. 
So if you're under the age of 12 or you're vaccinated and your kids aren't, you can go anywhere you want. Uh, banks, private offices, and anywhere else it's not listed, um, you can you can certainly go to. Like there's a, there's so many things you can look at online for a list. Here's where you don't want to go. So save yourself the grief and the stress by aggravating yourself and others and kicking up a storm. Indoor areas of meeting and event spaces, indoor and outdoor areas of food and drink establishments with dance facilities, including nightclubs, resto clubs, and other similar establishments, indoor areas of restaurants, bars, and food and drink establishments without dance facilities, indoor areas of facilities, big on dancing, everybody's big on dance, I don't even think people still do that, indoor areas of facilities used for sports and recreational fitness activities, including water parks, personal fitness areas, and so on, indoor areas of casinos, anything indoor you need to have a thing. You need to have a passport unless you're going in and out to use the washroom or you're going in quickly as, as the, from the list above, uh, convenience stores and pharmacies and, you know, stuff where you got to get in and get out. There, of course, you still need to be wearing a mask. Um, you know, and if you're not vaccinated, wear a mask anyway, you know, just to protect yourself and protect others, right? You don't want to make anybody sick and you don't want to get sick. Um, it's not a good disease to get. It's not, it's not nice. And it's, it's real. It's not, we, nobody made it up. It's not a big, a big thing that, uh, you know, that the media and government decided to get together and let's pretend, you know, the world is getting sick. It, it didn't happen like that. So, uh, trust me that, um, we've done a lot of research in the last couple of years, done a lot of radio shows on this and, uh, and, and the, and the network goes on before joining chorus. So, did a lot of serious research, never got called up on anything for being a bunch of BS, um, but it's a real thing. People are getting really sick and people are really dying. Uh, right now we're worried mostly about kids, to be honest. Um, so, uh, But just these are lots of places to go, man. You don't have to say, well, I feel like my life, I'm excluded, and I feel like I'm a, you know, a leper in the old days, and nobody wants me because my mom couldn't go to my mom's for Thanksgiving. Sure, because she's 78 and vulnerable. You should, you should know better to begin with. Anyway, lots of places to go. You can look them up online, Google, do whatever you need to do, and uh, there'll be lists of people who are more than comfortable to say, hey, welcome, and uh, let's go have some fun without you having to show a vaccine passport. When we come back from break, I want to talk about parenting. Uh, a cool article I found by Brandy, uh, Brandy uh, Wickle, uh, Wickle, I think, and um, they uh, really interesting about uh, a sort of a perspective on parenting and why it seems to be so hard for us these days. Uh, so come back and we'll talk about that in just a minute. You want a bud? 640 Toronto. You're listening to Road to Recovery with Yona Bud only on 640 Toronto. And welcome back. Thank you for joining us tonight. My name is Yona and you are on the Road to Recovery. You're along with Sophia and Corey and Devon, I believe, is uh, taking calls. And uh, happy to have everybody here. I know you have other choices. We're glad that you choose us. Dr. Moore is a he. I referred, I referred to uh, the good doctor as a she, and I want to make sure that at least I get that part right, the he and the she. I'm still working on the they stuff, but uh, not because I don't understand, not because I don't appreciate and want to be understanding. It's just I'm, i got to learn. I'm just uh, old dog, new tricks, that kind of stuff. Speaking of learning an old dog, new tricks, right? Um, interesting segue. We go from apologizing for a mistake to a show, but to, to, a, to, a, to a subject matter. Um, you know, parenting, the, the article says parenting was never meant like it never meant to be this hard. Let's fix it. That's the article um, by Brandy uh, Weekle. And one thing they've learned about the pandemic, the artist article says, is that we know how badly we really need each other, right? 
Uh, isolation proved that to us. We weren't able to access our loved ones, our friends, you know, colleagues, uh, you know, strangers at the at the neighborhood store for the matter for that matter for a while. And you know, when our access to people outside our household is cut, it exposed how hard it is to really get by on our own. You know, for a lot of people. Um, you know, for my wife and I, you know, we we had we, we we were able to get help from people, some that we that were volunteer and some that we paid for, uh, to help us through the difficult times when we couldn't get out and so on and so forth. So, the concept of parenting is that's what we're talking about here, right? Concept concept of parenting. You know, there was a time, there was a time, um, and still is an existing, um, I guess. Uh, you know, family, uh, family, family uh, uh, practice, if you will. I'm trying to find the right words here. Um, family practice, kind of a, you know, a tradition, not a, just the way it is that you know, multiple families, multiple families live in the same home, generally multiple generations. So grandparents, parents, daughter, or, or the grandparents, parents, children, and perhaps grandchildren. Um, so that, well, obviously grandchildren, but, you know, or perhaps great-grandchildren, I should say. So it, potentially three to four generations in the same in the same home, and you know it just made stuff easier. Makes stuff easier. Mom and dad are off often working hard and and doing their thing. You know, hard to get kids back and forth to sitters and and back and forth to to you know other kinds of programs. And sometimes you know grandpa can take pick up the kid and take him, or grandma's there to make sure that there's dinner ready when everybody gets home. You know, and 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 so on. We don't do that anymore. Somehow, we've we've gone away from that. We we we're, we're anxious to get away from our parents. We're anxious to get away from all the things that you know we kind of felt the most comfortable with. If we were being honest with each other, if I was actually staring you in the face, unless you come from extremely toxic family, for the most part, um, living at home was just easier, right? A lot of you know a lot of. Uh, um, a lot of traditional stuff in families, a lot of European families uh, still have that, right? Still have kids living at home until they're married, well into their 20s, sometimes early 30s, sometimes late 30s, sometimes they never leave, right? Um, families come, you know, kids get married, they come back home, live with mom and dad or, or in-laws, uh, live in the basement, uh, save a lot of money. They have a bunch of, have maybe a baby or two in that environment before they can actually afford to buy a house because it's almost impossible, obviously, in this city to buy a house unless your parents have, can help you in some way or you win a lottery or rob a bank or have a great job that pays you great money. I'm not suggesting you rob a bank, by the way, just for the record. Okay, so, you know, the thing about the way we live is that we're, we're not really meant to live alone. Like, you know, over generations and over, you know, so many years, we, we're designed to live in groups, according to David Sampson. He's an assistant professor at U of T in the Mississauga campus. <clears throat> and he says, we're designed to live in groups, usually no, mo- no smaller than 15 uh, to 25 adults, plus their children, he said. What we've been doing over the past century, he goes on to say, is especially since the end of the Second World War, is divide ourselves into smaller and smaller groups. And it's not working. It clearly isn't working. Not just is it not working because we're doing a lousy job of raising children, I will say. Uh, this generation of teens that I've experienced over the last decade or almost decade or two, I would say, are doing a horrible job. They're so, they're, they're so lost and, and need so much support and help that they just aren't getting. And they're not getting good modeling from their parents because, for the most part, parents are working hard trying to do the best they can, and they're not around much. So there's a lot of cultural groups 
that have abandoned their multi-generational households in, in, in favor of what's now called this nuclear family. There's lots that haven't, by the way. And I bet you if we did some kind of research study, and I'm, I'm not sure one exists, I didn't have time to really do that kind of um, chase, chase work to, be, to figure out for this, for this uh, segment. But I wonder if we did some research and looked at the quality of the lifestyle and habits and educational um, success, if you will, of people who lived in families where, you know, grandma was living with them or maybe grandma and grandpa or, you know, an older auntie or an uncle or, you know, someone else to help out um, in the house. And I'm not talking about nannies or people that uh, rich people can pay for, uh, but I'm talking about, you know, like someone in the family that's close, right? So number one, it's almost impossible to raise children by yourself today, especially if you're you and your, you and the, and, and, and if both parents are working and have a job, okay, just, it's, it's next to impossible. And to do a great job, it's next to impossible. If you're lucky to get a great kid or, you know, mom works during the day, dad works at night, so they never see each other. That's not very good for everybody anyway. So the concept of living together in larger families is more traditional for those that come from that, from different countries, especially we're seeing it a lot with people who are immigrating to Canada now from parts of the world where that's just a thing, Right kind of a cool thing, if you ask me, where there's a bunch of families living together. And by the way, it makes it really cost-effective for everybody. I have a neighbor not too far from me that, you know, they live in a, in a lovely uh, lovely townhome, and uh, it's the mom and, and, and dad and, and sisters and, the, and one of the sisters' two kids and uh, I think one of the, 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 one of the sisters' boyfriends, and from time to time there's uncles and aunts that come back and forth, and the grandma who's the, you know, one of the generations, she spends tons of time with these kids. They're so sore fortunate to have her, you know, in the summertime, I can see them outside playing and, you know, not in a creepy way, but I can see them outside playing and the kids love them. And it gives, gives the mother who's a you know, single mother, gives her time to do the things she wants to do and, you know, succeed in life in some way other than just being a mom. So, but what if you don't have those families? I mean, you know, what if we don't have those families? What if we don't have those kinds of supports in place? Well, there was also a time, and I remember even when I grew up, and I grew up in North, in North York, um, and, you know, my, my mom knew the neighbor lady next door. Um, I won't use her name, but I did too. And the lady across the street, I knew, we knew her too. And a couple doors down, we knew her too. One of my best friends when I was a, a younger kid um, was, you know, lived three doors down. And, you know, so we often were at each other's houses. Uh, my mother was a, was a, a homemaker and a mother. That was her job. Did a great job of it, by the way. Um, but um, anyway, so she, you know, we would often go to neighbors' houses for a meal or something, or they would come to our house more likely because my mother wasn't, uh, quote-unquote, working outside the home. She worked like a dog inside the home, by the way. She had four boys. Uh, I don't know how she survived. She's now pleasantly and healthily in her mid-90s. God willing, she'll continue forever. But uh, she survived the, you know, kind of like a, a real boot camp of raising some, some pretty rambunctious young men. But I'll tell you, if the, the neighbor people, we knew the neighbor people, right? Relying on the neighbor people in your life. Relying on, you know, doing, doing things like, okay, one night, one afternoon, I'll take the boys out. I'll take the kids after school so, you know, guys don't have to rush home. Or, you know, the, the, the neighbor, you know, one of the neighbors down the street needs to work late on a project or something that they're doing to try to, you know, improve their lives and help their families. You know, so, you know, you'll, the kids will come to your house for dinner, right? And then next, next time it might be, you know, your kid's going to their house. 
and going across the street to stay with, you know, Mrs. Smith and Mrs. Jones, who's a retiree and, 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 and a widower or a widow and, you know, would love to spend time with some kids. You don't have to raise them by yourself, my dear friends. You know I love you. I wouldn't give you bad advice. You don't have to raise them by yourself. As a matter of fact, some space and time between you and your children would both help them and help you. Helps deal with that whole codependency thing, right? Helps deal with that whole, you know, well, my mother won't let me do it or I can't do it unless my mother says hello. Create some, create some independence and perhaps some different perspective and at the very least some cool food from a different place that you're not familiar with or have ever tasted before. So why don't you think about neighbor raising your kids along with you or friends and relatives neighbor helping you raise your kids. You don't have to do it by yourself. When we come back, and we'll talk about a little bit more on this kids section, which is the first half of the show, sort of. Um, I want to talk about a drug called Spice. It's not really a drug. It's, it's just not good. You probably have it in your bathroom. Come on back in a minute here. Yona Bud, 640 Toronto. Welcome back to Road to Recovery with Yona Bud, only on 640 Toronto. Okie dokie, boys and girls and uh, men and women and all those in between, my dear friends, thank you for joining us and coming back to the show. Uh, this is our uh, third segment of the evening, and uh, we're going to talk about something um, that you know may not make much sense to you if you don't have kids or around teenagers, uh, but it may make some sense if uh, you heard some stories. So if you got a story that relates to this, um, it's called Spice. So if you have any stories related to Spice or heard about it or run into it in any way, shape, or form, it's the fake weed stuff that's easy for kids to buy online or some sometimes in convenience stores. Let me know right now, 416-870-6400 or text or uh, call us long, um, if you're calling long distance, 888-225-TALK, which spells out as 8255 on the keyboard. Um, so give us a call if you have any experience with 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 uh, Spice. It, you know, it's it's a fake it's a fake weed if you will a fake fake buzz right and it's available on the internet you know the web so to speak uh, easily you can get it anywhere uh and you can actually purchase it in a lot of convenience stores in certain parts of the city that uh, aren't well inspected uh certain head shops quote unquote what they used to call head shops place where you can buy uh, drug paraphernalia seem to sell spice and believe that it's a legal thing to sell bad stuff right it's harder to quit than real weed and is very dangerous Right, so this is a kid alert. We're not going to spend a lot of time on it, but it's a kid alert specifically for kids, kind of thirteen to twenty, thirteen to twenty-one. Uh, but really, the thirteen to nineteen-year-olds really kind of dig this stuff, or, or even the younger ones, because it's cheap and uh, not so hard to get. It's, it's it's a fake weed. It's called spice. It's uh, got a lot of harmful stuff in it. Uh, not like at all like it's naturally grown um, cousin. They say in this article, uh, but very difficult for people that want to quit. Uh, it comprised of uh, laboratory-made chemicals designed to mimic the psychedelic effects of THC and marijuana. So that's going to be stuff like, uh, you know, like PCP and those kinds of things that give you that crazy kind of punch in the head, rush for a minute or, or, or buzz, and then, you know, they hit you like a rock and you just, you know, are feeling miserable until you can do some more. And the same thing goes for things that you, snot, that you sniff and huff, 
um, different kinds of sprays and aerosols. So it's in that same world, right, that they spray some stuff onto a mix of herbs, uh, specifically people like prisoners, for example, homeless people. I mean, we're going to get to a homeless story here later on. Homeless people, they, they use the drug because it's very easy to get and very inexpensive, but it's mostly popular amongst teens and young adults, the ones who you don't really want to, well, you don't want anybody getting sick and, and, and potentially making, some, you know, lethally, in, in a lethal way, having a psychotic break. It's more potent than marijuana for sure. Um, it, it's 100% uh, more potent than marijuana um, and more addictive. It causes more severe side effects, including sleep, sleep issues, irritability, heart palpitations. So young kids come, you know, come in to emerge with a pounding heart like they're about to have a heart, a heart attack. Uh, low mood, and cra- low mood uh, cravings to consume or smoke more spice. And according to a study published on Friday, this past Friday, uh, in the Journal of Pharmacology, Stumming to a 215-216 survey of 182,000 people. The data included responses from 284. They reported spice 10 times in the past year. Tried to quit using the tried to quit using the drug and who uh, weren't uh, weren't able to do so. And despite the small amount of participants, the researchers at the University of Bath in England. Uh, said their study is the largest conducted so far on spice. So it, it, it's a big problem. 67% of participants said they've experienced uh, at least three withdrawal symptoms after trying to quit, including sleep, sleep symptoms, irritability, low mood, um, and so on. It, it, it looks like potpourri. It looks like potpourri. Um, it's actually often sprayed into things like a potpourri uh, or, you know, different, you know, natural things, but um, probably not great stuff to smoke by itself. Um, the findings show that spice is far more harmful um, in a uh, in a in a um, in, in terms of uh, leading to psychoses and so on than marijuana uh, and and severe. They, this, the article goes on to talk about severe symptoms of withdrawal like three times in the article. So like I get it. <laughs> this is really hard stuff to quit. Sixty-seven uh, percent of participants say they experienced um, this difficulty and the, the effects of it are so intense because once smoked or consume the drug attaches to the same nerve cells and the nerve cell receptors, that is, that THC does, the, the, the part that gets you high in marijuana. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's, uh, the, the, the high is unpredictable and very dangerous, uh, according to experts. They're, they're quite concerned about it, especially in the U.S. here, not so much. We don't seem to be talking about it as often. Uh, there were 28,500 emergency room visits last year alone uh, related to synthetic use of marijuana and 80% of them involving teens or young adults under the ages of 21. Um, it can be smoked, drunk, or uh, as a herbal tea or vaped in an e-vape or an e-pen uh, solution or, or suggestion. Anyway, I, I, it's, not, it's not a great, uh, it's something to really stay away from. If you hear anybody talking about it and going, well, it's not weed and you can buy it anywhere and it's like, you know, it's not addictive. Um, they're full of crap, really bad stuff, not designed for human consumption. Anything that's sprayed in there is not designed nor approved for human consumption. So not a good thing to do. When we come back, service with a smile. You know that person that serves you and they're just a little extra flirty? So you want to give them a bigger tip? Yeah, man, we're going to talk about that in a minute. Give us a shout. We'll be here, 416-870-6400 if you want to share a story. And we'll be right back. Yona Bud, 640, Toronto. You're listening to Road to Recovery with Yona Bud, only on 640 Toronto. Honey, you're going to need to get a skirt before your next shift. You want to make any money? said my coworker Catherine right before introducing herself. I'm reading from an article 
uh, written by Sofia uh, Vavarusos, who is uh, also our producer here tonight, and uh, my friend and a rec- you know, wonderful writer. And uh, she goes on to say that um, she, at my first day of work at the private golf club in my neighborhood as a high schooler, by my third shift, I knew how to sing in that singy song, uh, speak in that singy song voice, you know? How much the members liked it when I wore my hair down, and that I should never tell anyone I was dating someone. Sophia, welcome to the show. Thank or you. Welcome to the other side. Welcome to the other side of the microphone. Yeah, it's good to be back. So you were in high school, got a job. Uh, goes on to say the article here at the end of the season. I knew which cooks to flirt with, so I'd have fresh muffins to serve in the morning. And which members you would yell, "Good morning, beautiful!" as I drove past in my golf cart. And that if I lightly brushed the customer's arm just so much as I served them a beer, my tip would increase exponentially. Wow. So, yeah, man, um, let's talk about this article that you wrote. Um, you go on to say a, a lot more here. It's clearly not just about the story of your time as a server, but it goes on to talk about kind of the whole sexualized concept of service with a smile. Um, so uh, kick it off. Why don't you uh, kind of tell us where we go from there? So you learn how to flirt and, and, you know, with cooks so you could get stuff. At what point did you kind of realize that, you know, maybe this wasn't a good trade-off? Well, I realized it pretty much right away. I found myself in that job doing a lot of things that I didn't think were appropriate for someone who was still in high school, um, especially in a workplace, a place where you should be safe, you should be respected. And finding when that was encouraged actually made me feel very uneasy. So I wrote the article that you're reading from just into my first year of university and studying journalism. And it's about how as a server, especially as a woman, you you yourself are a service. You are selling yourself because there are so many different power dynamics at play. And you don't even think about it on the customer side when you're at a restaurant. But really, you do hold all the power. And servers already make less than minimum wage to account for tips. So when you're threatening to take people's tips away or you're holding them against that livelihood you really are in a position where you can very easily take advantage. So when you're, I mean, you're talking about this, obviously, in the food service industry. That's where this is all about here. It's where we're going with some of the stats, and that's kind of, you know, service with a smile is kind of the, the gist of the conversation. But it really applies to everything, doesn't it, man? Like, it doesn't really kind of apply to someone working in a sales environment or, uh, you know, you know, even as a, you know, as a full-grown adult with a full-time job, you know, working in the retail, in a residential business, you know, selling real estate. If you look at some of the residential real estate signs, that are you know that are uh, in, you know that are depicting certain you know that women in the or those representing themselves as women in the uh, real estate industry and some of the pictures and some of the signs um, are a lot more um, uh, physically enticing, if you will, if one was to look at it that way, uh, than others. Um, isn't this a thing though? We're not just women, but you know all of us kind of want to dress ourselves up, maybe wear something a little bit tighter if we're going in for that job interview, kind of knowing that. You know, we can, you know, it's not just about what's on my mind, but maybe how I look too. I mean, yes, but we also have to look at it from the perspective of the fact that that's wrong. That is very wrong. And especially where I was discussing young women, we should never be putting teenagers in a position where they feel like they should have to be almost selling themselves as a service to be taken seriously in their position. And with me, it looked like making less money, but with 
teenagers being that their first job a lot of the time, you don't really know that that's not the way it should be. And so you're very easily falling into those traps. And it's difficult, especially in those service industry jobs, because you are so replaceable, because it's such an entry level job. If you say no, we can just bring in someone else. I agree to normalize the idea that sexuality was a tool, something I was able to strategically use until customers got hold of it and used it against me. Manipulator be manipulated was the mentality my girl gang at work and I used to share. Uh, But after starting at Ryerson, you say, this is you, of course, you know (laughs) that you wrote this, I learned the experiences of women at my workplace wasn't unique. The restaurant industry itself is a toxic one for women. University aged, I really need this job. And especially for university aged, I really need this job because students have to pay so much more type women as well. So you realized that you knew that, you know, at some point in time uh, that this, you know, beyond, you know, being this high school kid, you obviously, you you didn't give the money back. Um, So, you know, looking at it as a writer now and as a, you know, almost, I would say you're somewhat of an advocate for the, for people who are, are have need a voice, uh, which is one of the things we really like about you. But um, but but standing back for a second, and you know, knowing that when you work, um, you know, knowing that if you're going to work at a certain place, uh, certain there's certain expectations. Um, and yes, you're a hundred percent right. I agree with you for the for the record and for whatever it's worth. It is a hundred percent wrong. It, it's not it's not right at any level. I get it. I'm with you. But we do it all the time. You know, people talk about, you know, going to work and, and, and applying for jobs, like I said, and wearing something that's going to be, you know, more enticing perhaps or more um, inviting. And maybe that's not even the right word. Maybe it's just a question of looking more put together. Uh, and I think I asked you offline, you know, if I was if, – if someone served me, and I don't care, you know, whether men, women, or anything in between, and they were put together well, you know, that everything sort of fit like it should and was tucked in and didn't look like they slept in their clothes, I'm more likely to want to, you know, it, it more likely would lead to, by the way, better, you know, more efficient service because it kind of goes together uh, psychologically. But, you know, someone who came over to my table to serve me and they were all frumpy looking, whether it's men or women or anything in between, I, you know, it would bother me if they weren't, if they didn't care that much about themselves. So there's a fine line here is what I'm saying. Not even a fine line. There needs to be a line between people understanding that someone comes to work dressed, dressed nicely and looking nicely with their hair up, their hair down, whatever, because they want to look good to go to work, not because they're putting themselves on a plate or make them part of the menu. I get that. How do we do a better job of that? Well, the number one thing is to have supportive management in place. So if you're in a situation as I was where I was serving people who generally are very elite, very privileged, if the notion even from management is that their needs come above my own dignity as a person or my own feelings about what are right, what's right and what's wrong, then that is not going to teach me to value myself. And it's going to teach me instead to just go along with whatever is being put out, whether or not their comments are making me feel sick or not, to just go along with it to preserve that service with a smile attitude. So number one, supportive management. Okay, number two, (laughs) carry on. (laughs) Uh, Number two is, like you said, really understanding the boundary and where you are as someone who's accessing the service. So if my uniform says that I need to wear this golf skirt, for example, is that your invitation to make comments on my body? It's not. That's my work uniform. I'm here to do a job. Right. 
No more, no more than if you wore, you know, something that had ears and a tail and, and a little red nose because it was went with the place, the burger joint you were working at. People shouldn't comment about that either, right? So, but let, so let's talk about, let, let's get down here, right, for a minute. So take a place like Hooters. I mean, I think I went there once or twice in my life. The food wasn't so great. Um, and you go to a place like Hooters, right? And the, the girls, because it's for female uh, or women who present themselves as female, um, you know, where it is by, by design and regardless of whether we like the idea or we don't like the idea, um, people who get a job there have to fit into clothes that represent a, uh, you know, a, a fairly well-endowed uh, female. I mean, they don't have guys serving, right? Um, so you apply for a job there. And I'm not suggesting that opens the door, by the way. The uniform, I don't suggest opens the door for anybody to take advantage of it or make comments or anything in a in a sexualized way. I don't think there's any room for that in any any workplace, period, um, including strip joints, which we're going to get to later in our show. But the, so but the so but if you're going to go to work there, right? Like if I'm going to go to work at McDonald's and I don't like the uniform because I don't like the way it looks and it doesn't fit me nicely, and I, I get to choose whether I want to work there or not. So, you know, the people that are going to apply for certain jobs where they know it's implied, whether in the interview or just by others who, who let them know that, hey, listen, you know, the boss likes, uh, likes uh, you know, likes it when you come to work with tight clothes and, uh, you know, make sure your boyfriend doesn't come around because, you know, people don't like that, which is another part of your article here. Don't let the boyfriend come around, uh, which is equally disgusting, by the way. Um, you know, choices, you get to make choices. Like you could have walked away from that job, right, and found another I'm not suggesting that everybody can if you're if you're stuck and you have nothing else and this is all that's available but it's about choices right so how do we how do we you know and again there are people I know a lot of um women in my in my experiences and some some trans women who you know enjoy um you know dancing who enjoy you know stripping so to speak who enjoy wearing you know those kinds of clothes and 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 do so because it makes them feel sexy and happy and you know uh, feel good, but not not as an invitation. So how are we going to do a better job, especially in your generation, um, of making sure that you know people who want to dress a certain way, whether it's you know you're wearing all black gothy you know gothy kind of clothes, or you know you're half the half of what you wear looks like you should be you know you can buy in a women's store and half you can buy in a men's store. Like who cares? How how, is, how do you see society, especially your generation? Getting by the, you know, whatever it is, it is, and it's not an invitation to say or do anything. Well, the number one thing for that, I guess, would be education and, and teaching people all about the different power dynamics that are at play when you're in any of these circumstances. So I also mention in the article, I spoke to another server who was a black woman, and there was a very yeah. specific incidence that happened with her that was yep. sexualization from gender, but also from race. And so we really need to look at these circumstances and understand that anything that you're doing because you are confident and you are empowered and you are aware of your choice is fine. And that's not what I'm talking about. I am talking about sexual and gender-based violence and harassment that occurs because when you're at a job, when you're making money, you're not in a position to give anyone informed consent because you have that money hanging over your head. And right. so teaching people that customers should not be holding that over your head and being consciously aware of that and not, you know, let's say you're going to a restaurant 
Is the uniform revealing? Maybe, but I'm still holding money over this server's head and I need to respect that now's not the time for me to be flirting with this person because they can't say no. For example, what you're talking about is the, in your article, talking about somebody who was working at a drive-thru location, uh, a, a, a black woman working in a drive-thru location, and the customer said, oh, she said, we have regular uh, hot coffee, dark hot coffee, and white, uh, or, I'm sorry, we have regular hot chocolate, dark hot chocolate, and white hot chocolate. Uh, and he said, just, oh, I love dark hot chocolate, I love dark stuff. When he gets to the window, he says to the woman um, and sees that she's black, see, I told you I love dark stuff dark chocolate as he refers to her that's just not cool anywhere and i'll tell you if you know if he would have said it to a black man probably he might have gotten a whooping so um yeah i'm with you 100 percent um on this article i think there's there's clear inequality um between you know uh those that have to uh serve at a, you know at, at a level you know it's and by the way it's not just customer it's customer service in general i did a show about this a while ago but you know customer services in general people seem to take advantage not just in a sexualized way but in, in other demeaning ways you know talking to someone like they're an idiot i heard a one woman call somebody retarded the other day um in, in a store uh i almost threw up um, you know, so it, it, we're, we're in a difficult place. And then, you, you know, part of your article goes on to talk about trans people who I think are just having a hard time fitting into this crazy world that we live in anyways. And then you add, you know, put them in a position where they're serving, um, you know, in, in, in their, in their, in their, in their life and in, in, in the way they're living their lives, perhaps as a trans woman um, and someone, you know, sort of reading it, maybe seeing an Adam's apple or something and, 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 and making a comment. I've heard about it all the time. I, I have, I've, I've talked people down from suicide calls uh, for things quite that stupid. So um, once again, uh, you're an amazing writer. You, you expose uh, really good stuff. I'm going to try to find another article that we can do the next time you're on. Um, but I'm really glad that you found your voice. I'm really glad that you had that experience to now understand the value. And I'm sure somewhere along the line in your family, uh, someone that uh, you, you respect said to you, you know, value uh, your mind more than your body because that's really what counts. And you must have heard that at some point, right? Yeah, but I just want to make very clear you can value your body in situations where you're able to give consent to valuing your body and putting your body out there. You cannot do that when you're at work and it's being held over your head. And that's the main issue that I was driving home here. Well, yeah. And I think we need to change the, I think we need to desperately change the dynamics of business and what's allowed and not allowed because you're right. It needs to start from the top down. So uh, yeah, we'll bring this up again sometimes so people don't forget. Thank you, Sophia, very much. I got to get off because she's buzzing in my ear that I'm done uh, for this hour. So we'll be back in a few minutes after the news and such. Yonabud, 640 Toronto. Addiction is a serious issue, and we take it seriously. This is Road to Recovery with Yonabud on 640 Toronto. Okay, welcome back to the show. Thank you so much for joining us uh, for our second hour here. You are on the road to recovery. I am the driver to this evening. My name is Yona Bud. Thank you for joining us. We know you have other choices, and uh, we're glad you chose us. Uh, protesters outside um, uh, Newfoundland and Labrador Jail call for better care for prisoners after inmate suicide. We've heard a lot about this kind of stuff um, in the last while as it relates to um, patients or people, patients, prisoners, um, who should be patients, frankly, uh, admitted to hospital and um, or admitted to, to prison or locked up in prison, not admitted, get my head together here, locked up in prison and uh, in fact need a, a ton of mental health care and support if they can. Um, and um, 
the, the problem is that they're, you know, they're killing themselves. And uh, this was a protest that was put together uh, by a woman who lost her, who, who lost her son um, and um, is now also supported by a woman whose son is in prison and not in a good way, um, has some serious mental health issues and so on. Uh, the biggest fear is that the person is, that my loved one is going to commit suicide or overdose, she said. Uh, watching it happen to another family uh, is horrible. This is uh, this, this Joanne Power whose son is in jail. Um, so it, it, it's, a, it's a big problem. We're having a hard time uh, matching uh, the needs of people that are being incarcerated with their mental health um, needs as well. Uh, I have on the phone, uh, joining us this evening, uh, Edward Hertrick, who is um, a good friend of the show, good friend of mine, and uh, spent uh, about 35 years in prison. Uh, he's the writer of a book uh, that you uh, need to get your hands on as well. Uh, we'll have him tell us about that in a minute. Uh, Edward, welcome to the show. Good evening, my friend. It's a pleasure to hear your voice and know that you're well and healthy. Um, so not not a lot of news here in terms of, uh, you know, old school stuff here about people killing themselves in jail. Uh, we're not doing any good at this. What, what's, what's the solution in your mind, do you think, about how we, how we need to kind of attend to the needs of, uh, of people we're putting in prison that have serious mental health issues? Well, I don't have to dig deep to remember that, you know, I've lost a lot of associates, you know, many that were friends of mine to, you know, uh, suicide and uh, drug overdoses where they succumb to their addictions. Um, so it's a soft spot with me. The, I guess, medical, psychological, Healthcare workers that are attracted to corrections aren't in the top 30 percentile of their classes. It's not a place that, you know, people aspire to work in uh, due to its controlled environment and its perceived clientele. So uh, you don't get the cream of the crop uh, to address your mental needs, uh, your addiction needs. When you were there, when, when I know, I know when you when you were when you were there. Um, you obviously experienced and saw some pretty horrible stuff. I mean, is it, is it that the guards and such just don't care or is the system not, not designed for, you know, I hear stories, even patients, as you know, patients that I, that I see that are, um, you know, just got out of jail or on their way into jail, uh, who have some serious issues around, you know, what withdrawal is going to be like when they get in, they get arrested in the middle of a bad situation and they're withdrawing, you know, coming off of some pretty serious drugs. Um, and kind of left to do that on their own. There's no, uh, there's no detox, there's no withdrawal program, there's no nothing, right? Well, there isn't. And, uh, you know, the assistance just isn't there that they require. Um, at the same time, um, you know, and I've lost friends of mine to suicide, they come at a time where you really can't blame the guard staff because generally men will wait for the guards to do their round knowing they're not coming back for another hour, and then they will... Um, kill themselves and commit suicide. And uh, that's very unfortunate. Um, the psychological help leading up to their suicide, they're not receiving any. Um, maybe sometimes they keep it to themselves, but if they do talk about it, um, other men like myself would try to, you know, allow them to express themselves and try to assist them. But we're not professionals either. We're other prisoners just like them and you know um the last the last institution i went into they uh 
had a mandatory uh, suicide prevention program, which I thought was very good because it, you know, it, it helped guys understand the uh, the points that they should recognize as people going to commit suicide. In other words, you know, when a prisoner offers to give you all his stuff, he's thinking yeah. something bad. You know, yeah. Yeah. Um, and and it's it's good that they're instituting programs like that. But as I say, corrections is not attractive to any real professional help to a high level. I was looking at the inquiry on the on the article that uh, you're you're relating to, and they were saying that the inquest was saying that you know um, they need more assistance, and corrections is in agreement with that. The problem I find with that is that you know those comments placate society. But what the inquiry means is to give the prisoners more attention. What corrections means is that they'll get more funding for more prison staff, more psychologists, more um, better IT equipment. Um, more of the basically more of the same, though, right? Yes, and and the, and the prisoners will receive the same, which is pretty much nothing. So I mean, I, I you know I spent a decade at OCI Ontario Correctional Institute. It's I think one of the correct me if I'm wrong. I think it's the only well, it's a provincial prison for sure. First of all, uh, and versus the federal stuff that you were you were tied up in for you know three decades or longer. Um, the you know at OCI there's obviously a not obviously for those people that don't know it, it's a it's a program for uh, people that have uh, both addiction and mental health issues, serious criminals uh, that uh, choose to. Um, uh, get help versus uh, just go to prison, and there's a lot of programs and addiction counseling and such. Is there is there another OCI or is there an OCI kind of structure in the federal system? I I don't think so. Well, I know there's a Northern Treatment Center which I've never been uh, a party to, although I have been in OCI prior to my federal sentences. Um, yeah. But the Northern Treatment Centers they do have uh, addiction places for inmates but i mean generally those prisoners that attend them uh they really have to get themselves in a lot of hot water before they are transferred to those institutions and right. you know basically when i say getting in hot water they run into debt they've been assaulted um they just got into deep through their addictions uh suicides you know there's a few suicides but there are a lot more attempted suicides there are a yeah. lot of men that think about committing suicide and talk about it, and there's even a lot more that think about it that don't talk about it at some point in their incarceration. And, uh, you know, I mean, it's, it's for me, you know, you can point the fingers at health care and, and the security because they are lacking, very much so. But, you know, I think, you know, some of the burden has to be placed, you know, on the support system that the prisoner himself has, you know, including himself. You know. Right. Um, but but I mean, it, 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 if someone Eddie, if 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 someone complains um, about you know, like if if there's if if a guy is known to sort of you know have have talked to talk and has a plan and share you know sharing it on the on the block so to speak you know on on the somewhere in the, in the facility that he's thinking of taking his life. I mean, is that person then? you know, isolated such that they're, they're on kind of some kind of a suicide watch or do you actually have to like cut yourself and hurt yourself or try to hang yourself before they take you seriously? 
Oh, absolutely. If he's expressing it to the staff, but usually they would, you know, may express it to one or two of their close associates and, and the associate to go to the staff would be perceived as being a untrustworthy. Yeah, yes, exactly. An informant, even though he's doing it for the benefit of, of a person that he cares about uh, his, you know, his status within the within the institution uh, would definitely be harmed. Um, pa- patients or prisoners or prisoners that come in that are patients of psychiatrists and doctors, um, for whatever reason, you know, um, they're, 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 they're requiring medication. Um, our prisoner, I, I've, I've intervened probably two, three, four dozen times in my career, uh, helping families get to the medical people through, uh, through usually through the chaplain. I was a chaplain at OCI. So, uh, have the ability to at least reach through to other chaplains, uh, to try to make sure people got their medication. And we were, you know, successful, but did a lot of, a lot of, a lot of, uh, phone calls, a lot of, uh, letters and emails and such to make that happen. Uh, that's a big problem, right? People are just not getting the meds they need. Well, yeah, or they're not taking them. You know? Or they're not taking, or they're selling them for something else. Exactly, they're trading them off for their addiction purposes. Um, you know, it's it, it's it's really a sad state. I think that you know they've implemented a couple of stages in the federal system that I seen shortly before I left. Although I didn't really get to experience it too much, as I said, the suicide prevention program, and you know, uh, I spent. Uh, about six months in administrative seg, the whole lockup, uh, where they were supposed to have a psychologist come down at least once every week to talk to you to make sure, you know, uh, you weren't going out of your mind, stir crazy and committing suicide. I, I actually, I had a young youth right across the hall from me hanging himself and he oh. died. Um, so, uh, and I should have yeah. known cause he, he come down and they locked him in across the hall from me. And he offered me, you know, all his stuff. And I was like, I don't need your stuff, kid, you know. And then in the morning, the guards woke me up and said, do you know the guy across the hall hung himself? And I said, well, no, I didn't, <laughs> you know. But um, it's something traumatic, I should Traumatic, have, traumatic stress for two, for, for sure, for you. Uh, I'm well, on the I've phone. i a lot of them experiences. Unfortunately. So uh, we have, my guest is uh, Edward Hertrick. He's the writer of a book called Wasted Time, something that you should read. It's really well done. Eddie, thank you for joining us tonight. Uh, we'll have you back hopefully for some better news as, uh, as we look at how this story unfolds and if the government uh, and corrections folks actually begin to make some changes. Uh, Edward Hertrick, uh, writer, uh, author of Wasted Time, good friend of mine in the show, and uh, just a really good guy. He, um, spent a lot of time behind bars now, spends his time helping people stay away from that life. We'll be back shortly to talk about strippers. Yeah, they're challenging the, some pandemic measures, and we're going to talk to a lawyer who's going to help us understand what this challenge looks like. We'll be right back. Yonabud, 640 Toronto. You're listening to Road to Recovery with Yona Bud, only on 640 Toronto. And welcome back to the show. Thank you. I am Yona Bud, and you are on the Road to Recovery. It is now 1020. Do you know where your children are, loved ones, pets, seniors in your life? If you don't know where they are and you're concerned about them, you should probably call 911. If you ever need to reach me for any reason, I'm more than willing to help and talk to anybody that wants to call 877-777-5808. I'm available uh, anytime, place. If I can't call you right back, I will get to you, I promise, uh, sometime that same day. Uh, advocacy group representing strippers will argue in Ontario, uh, Ontario court this week that pandemic measures affecting strip clubs 
have targeted the workers and violated their charter rights. Strip clubs were later allowed to reopen with safety plans under Ontario's pandemic rule, but the workers' group intends to argue that strippers have been targeted and excluded even after the changes. The factum for work safe, twerk safe, argues that while accommodations were made for businesses, strippers weren't offered labor protections or consulted on measures as they expected to be based on past practices. The case is due to be heard, was heard last week, last Monday. Uh, we have a guest joining us this evening, uh, Naomi Sayers, is a lawyer in the Notary Republic. Um, Naomi is an Indigenous lawyer with trauma informed with a trauma-informed practice and focuses on public law matters. Naomi, thank you for joining us this evening. Yeah, thank you for having me. Uh, amazing. Um, nothing else to do on a Saturday night, right? So let's get on. <laughs> let's 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 talk to Yoda on the radio. So um, I, I'm hoping you're familiar with this article what we're talking about here. Um, uh, is this you're familiar with what, what I'm talking about here in terms of this factum? Yeah, I was the lawyer who argued it. Oh, okay. Oh, perfect. Okay, because I don't see anything in the article that actually calls you out. I just figured, oh, how cool! Yeah. We found somebody who can give us yeah, an opinion. We, okay, we so make it about so. Me. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I'd love to make it about you. I'm always looking for a, a, this kind of a lawyer to put on our, our our hot list of people we can lean on when we need help. Um, we'll make sure that Corey, our uh, producer, puts you on that list for sure because I know you're up at this hour. So, so mm-hmm. seriously, um, why is this any different? Straight out, why is this any different than, let's say, you know, uh, uh, restaurant workers, uh, hospitality workers? I don't think anybody kind of you know checked on them uh, and asked the you know the the, the organization that in, you know that deals with people that serve us in a restaurant, what their thoughts were on different opening rules and regulations. Why are, um, are uh, these dancers um, so, you know, what, what's really, what are they looking for and, you know, why wasn't it provided if it should have been? Right. So that was one of the questions that came from the panel of judges who heard, and that was also one of the issues that was raised in our factum. So one of the issues that was brought forward by the Ontario government was they're saying that the the issue is now moot, meaning it's no longer live and the court shouldn't hear it. So the court dismissed it um, and agreed with the Ontario government and sort of said, because it's not a live issue anymore, um, we don't want to exercise their discretion to hear it. And partly, um, we, 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 don't, we don't have reason, so I can't say why. Uh, but one of the main reasons is that the Ontario government made legislative changes that changed it, um, uh, that ordered all the strip clubs closed. But what's, what's different here is that uh, sh- strippers are targeted and were targeted by the law for who they are and what they what they do, right? And they were specifically targeted by Premier Ford and Mayor John Tory's words, right? So Mayor Tory said, uh, you know, those blanket orders work really well. I'll talk to the provincial people. Premier Ford makes a joke, says, I don't want to be one of the persons that go home at night and have to tell everybody that, you know, I was at the brass rail. And then uh, clearly somebody's talking to somebody because then a couple of weeks later, um, the blanket order comes comes down and arbitrarily shuts down all the strip clubs. And at the end of the month, my news and when Sir was ending, so not only are strippers already marginalized, then they're doubly marginalized, triply marginalized by the end of the month, Sir ending. So, so you're talking that the, the strip clubs are currently closed, correct? No, no. So oh, oh, oh so this is going so back. This is going back to the time when they were when yeah. they were closed. I understand. Yeah, okay. and I I don't know. I can't answer that question whether strip clubs are open or closed because I don't know what they're doing. Right. Um, all I know is that the strippers have been impacted 
negatively by the government. And, and the, government, think, the government can't even answer that question. They can't say whether all the strip clubs are open or closed, right? Like, we, some of them are. Are all of them? We don't know. So is, is the issue that, you know, the, 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 the guests, if that's the right term, uh, I'm being polite, if the guests that are coming into the establishment, uh, yeah, no judgment here, right? If the guests are coming into the establishment, is the concern that they have to say, hey, I was at the, I was at the brass rail and I'm going to be on a list with my name and phone number and all that stuff. And, and if that's the case, isn't that, you know, I, I know that, that places that provide quote unquote massages, uh, are in fact open and, yep. you know, not, they're supposed to be asking, but they don't really push it. Um, so what, what, how did this slip through the cracks? Right. So we don't know how it slipped through the cracks, but what I can say, um, is that back in March of 2020, the WorkSafe to WorkSafe had a meeting with the city of Toronto. Okay. It was set up for March 16th, March 15th, the night before they said, we're canceling the meeting. And they didn't rebook again. And probably had they rebooked again, uh, you know, WorkSafe to WorkSafe would have been able to provide them information and education on, you know, hey, here's how strippers can help in contact tracing or, uh, you know, uh, helping, uh, you know, customers become regulars, customers become friends, some people in the strip club, you know, or your neighbor, your roommate, um, your girlfriend, boyfriend, whatever, right? So it's there are relationships in the strip clubs, and when you leave those people out, strippers, it really leaves out this subset of really valuable knowledge, right? So are they are they are the strippers working or is, is work safe twerk safe? Is is it looking for um, some form of financial consideration for being missed? In, in the queue here, or are they are they looking to like what what's what's the desired outcome, if you will, of this activity, this legal activity currently? So it was like I was mentioning at the beginning. It was um, the court demissed as moot. They said that they don't they're not going to exercise their discretion to hear it. Um, right. So we're waiting for the decision. We're just in a sit and wait position right now. Um, depending on what that decision says, um, you know, we'll review it and I'll get instructions from the clients to determine next steps. Um, but, you know, one of the, one of the asks was, you know, was declaring that their, their charter rights were violated because um, they were put into precarious positions made more precarious by the government's actions. I see. How, how many people are behind this? Like how many strippers are we talking about? Like are we talking about a you know a group of a well are we, is work safe twerk safe is it representing a couple dozen women or a couple dozen dancers I don't want to you know genderize them members throughout Ontario and their members uh, dance within Ontario and Alberta. So how big do you think that number is? How many voices? I don't have an estimate at right now. Okay, so is this? And let me ask you something: does the does the um, does the profession, if you will? of uh of exotic dancers uh strippers is the term you use so i'll use the yep, same if do, do, do they is it a, do they not there I, I understood there was some form of organized um i don't know organized employment or, um, structure uh, almost like they sort of all got together at some point even years ago is, is that not something that exists still today like a representative like a, like a representative body an advocacy group so to speak so WorkSafe to WorkSafe is the advocacy body. 
whatever yeah. other people choose to do is their choice, right? Okay, okay. Um, how many people do you think sort of connect with WorkSafe, TwerkSafe? Is it something that most strippers use or only those that are informed? Or like is this a, is this, you know, if you took 10 strippers in a room and asked them? Throughout, they have members throughout Ontario and, they have, and their members dance in uh, throughout Canada. So you don't know if it's hundreds, a thousand, five hundred, two hundred. We have no idea what, how big the voice. I'm just trying to think of how big the voice is and and what they can do to be heard, right? So the bigger the voice, the more they can be heard. I mean, obviously hiring someone like well, you. Well, they or, have been heard already. They already have had an anonymization decision anonymizing their affidavits to be heard in the Ontario court. That yeah, decision was already by the Supreme Court of Canada, and so they have been heard. Yeah, but but heard and then put down, right? So they, they they probably need to scream some more. I think I, I'm I'm really um, I'm really intrigued I won't by the comment on that because I don't have a decision to comment on, so okay. I can't really comment on whether they were shut down. Okay, I almost I won't try to sli- I was trying to slide you out of uh, lawyer mode there for a while, but listen, um, no, unfortunately okay. we ran, we we ran out of time, but um, it's great to meet you. We hope that we can count on you to come back and talk about stuff that that you're interested in in in, in your area of practice. Um, mm-hmm. You're an excellent guest. I, I feel terrible. Uh, for this organization, for this organization of people, and I just wish they had a huge voice. And hopefully, we've given them a little one here. Uh, maybe come back sometime, and we can uh, have a couple of these um, members of this organization uh, join you and kind of hear where they're coming from. So I wish you luck, and if we can do yeah. anything on this show to help move the the art stick a little bit for you, we'd be glad to. I'm with Naomi Sayers. She's a lawyer in the mm-hmm. Notary Republic. Uh, she's an Indigenous lawyer with specializes in trauma informed. Uh, issues in her practice, and she fo- focuses mostly on public law matters and just a wonderful guest. Hope to have her back. We'll be right back talking to someone else here about humanizing the homeless, how difficult it is for them during the pandemic, like it wasn't tough enough before, right? Yonabud, 640 Toronto. Welcome back to Road to Recovery with Yonabud, only on 640 Toronto. Welcome back, my dear friends with us here tonight. My name is Yona Buddy. You are on the road to recovery. We're getting close to the end of the road for this evening, but uh, still a little bit more to do. If you want to talk to us, we'd love to hear from you. 416-870-6400. Just call, say hi, uh, let uh, Devon know that you care, and uh, say hi to him. He's a little lonely tonight. Haven't had anybody call. I guess I haven't given you much chance either. So listen, uh, I was out not long ago, as I am from time to time in the late evenings, and when I see people that are on the street, street people, quote-unquote homeless people, um, I try to give what I can. And sometimes I'm in better shape than others. I give a little more when I can and less when I can't. This particular night, I was uh, in good shape. I'd uh, uh, gotten, gotten a nice bonus for my, some of my, uh, my uh, coaching, uh, performance coaching work. And um, anyway, I was feeling, feeling pretty good and um, decided that I was going to make a fairly generous donation to this gentleman um, who was uh, sitting uh, over a grate, over a heat grate with his blankets, and he had, a, he had a, some kind of basket or, or a cart beside him. And, and I went over to offer him uh, the money, and he stopped me. And he said, can you just do me a favor and please put it down? And I said, yeah, man, sure. Like, what's up? He says, you're not wearing a mask. 
So good on him, right? So I wasn't wearing a mask. He didn't want me to get too close. But, um, yeah, unusual kind of situation. But uh, So recently, I was dri- while I was driving through the countryside one night on my way to the speaking engagement, I hit a deer. As I stood in the middle of the road looking at the poor thing, tears filled my eyes. The terrified deer, a young doe, tried several times to get up and run away, but her legs were broken, could not. Then practic- pathetically, she began to slowly crawl away until... She was swallowed up by the dark forest. When a police officer arrived, they told him where the deer had gone, hoping that he would put her out of her misery. He told me, no, can't do that. Sorry. Uh, It was on private property and coyotes will get her. Don't worry. Uh, And that was supposed to be reassuring. This was uh, written by um, our guest this evening, and she um, goes on to talk a little bit more in this article. And her name is Leah Den Bach. She's a contributor um, and a journalist. And and one of the, you know she goes on to talk that she learned about an important lesson that night: the lack of love. She was standing in the middle of the street trying to deal with this animal, and drivers just kind of swerved by her, going by, and no one really stopped to say, "Hey, you know, like you okay? You need some help?" And um, you know, obviously uh, they didn't stop, and she managed to do the best she could. Terrible experience for her, <clears throat> and she realizes that hardship on hardship describes well lives of people who are experiencing homelessness during the pandemic. It's almost like um, you know, like when you're trying to practice physical distancing, uh, but they're all crammed into shelters, or you know, we tell people to sh- wash their hands and they don't have access to places to, sh- to wash their hands and do so. Um, I guess this evening, as I said, is Leah. Den Bach, and she is a writer. Leah, thank you for uh, joining us this evening and for uh, spreading, uh, sharing some light here uh, in this very needed uh, topic. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Oh, it's a pleasure. And uh, thanks for being up so late at night. I hope it's a, a normal thing for you and that I'm not keeping you from your sleep. So, you know, it, it, it's just kind of an, I won't say it's obvious because it sounds sad, but if I say it that way, but I mean, it just makes sense that if, you know, we were dealing with uh, people who are who don't have homes, we obviously call them homeless, people who are living in cardboard boxes under bridges and shelters when they can uh, in any environment, you know, burned out buildings and such. Um, obviously, during the pandemic, um, that must have just made life so much more difficult for them with soup kitchens and service areas and organizations that, you know, they would rely on a typical day uh, being shut down. Um, give me an idea of where this kind of article went uh, after this br- brilliant opening of uh, you hitting the deer. And I'm really sorry, by the way, that you had to go through that and deal with humanity as ugly as it is. Um, wh- where do you go with this article? Um, so in this article uh, that I published, Hardship on Hardship, I'm really trying to talk about the fact that the hardships that people experiencing homelessness were facing before the pandemic have really only become much more difficult because of the pandemic. And in fact, they probably won't improve. So I'm really trying to highlight these issues. And I give some uh, firsthand stories of some homeless individuals that I interviewed uh, in the Toronto area, giving their personal experiences of how the pandemic has affected them. And it's just really been horrific to hear. Um, like a main thing that most people don't think of is because of social distancing, most people won't even give people experiencing homelessness money anymore. So yeah. They really have no resources to get by and they often can't go into any buildings to use the washroom or to clean up. And so they almost have no way to use a washroom, no way to clean up, no way to get money. It's been almost unimaginable for them. So short of the physical distancing part, because of people not wanting to approach them, um, I'd be glad. I'm proud to say I'm not one of them. But, um, you know, the 
the it's not new. I mean, other than they're not getting the handouts, so to speak, quote unquote, um, they're still, you know, even before the pandemic, we didn't have really places for them to go into the washroom. You know, you couldn't, you know, I, I have a hard enough time going into a McDonald's and saying, do you mind if I use the washroom? And I think I look pretty respectable. Uh, maybe I don't, but you know, so for, for homeless folks, um, they, they didn't have that opportunity even prior to the pandemic. I guess what scares me more, not scares me, what, her, what, what concerns me the most of what you just said, and, and it was a really well-written article, by the way, um, you, you talk about, you know, it, it's harder now during, you know, now that we're into the pandemic, coming out of the pandemic, and likely not to change. So you don't think we're going to learn from, from, this, from, from this experience as, as a society and perhaps as a, as, as a government, uh, whatever, whichever government's at that level, uh, municipal, I guess. Um, they, we're, we're, you don't think we're going to learn something here to, to, to make sure that we cover people into the future, like we're trying to learn about all the other things that come out of this pandemic? When I say uh, it's likely not to change, it's more in the context of I don't think that the situation that the people experiencing homelessness are in right now is going to change. Um, since it's become, their situations have become more difficult and I don't think that their situations are going to improve at all and even can go back to the way they were before the pandemic. Uh, it seems as though unless um, us as the general public or the government step in to build, have more resources and affordable housing, um, these conditions just won't change and, and people experiencing homelessness as condition is going to go downhill and we're going to have more people experiencing homelessness um, because of the pandemic, of course. You know, it it they we it certainly appeared from the media perspective, and of course I'm one of them, so I, you know I blame myself along with my brothers and sisters in the business. But um, you know, I, I you know the 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 reality is that you know we went crazy trying to get um, trying to get you know jabs into the arms of everybody, and even providing you know um, mobile units for those that are homeless don't have a place to go uh, when we wanted to reach out to protect ourselves, so to speak, quote unquote. Um, we, you know, we did what we could. We mobilized, make sure we get jabs and arms of everybody that might make us sick. Um, so there was obviously a focus on people that didn't have homes to go to or, or locations that they could, you know, uh, register with and so on. So we, we, we mobilized really quickly. One would hope that that mobilization and one would hope that that, 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 um, I guess that reflection, that, that light that we can shine on this experience should open us up to understanding that we can put, you know, mobile hospitals on the grounds of a parking lot in a hospital and no one says boo. Throw up tents with a bunch of soldiers in like hours and the next thing you know, you got a hundred beds for emergency care. Why do we not have enough blank pieces of property and, and parking lots to throw up these same kind of tents and, and, and outdoor, you know, washing facilities and mobile washing facilities that people that can't afford homes or, or may not want to be in a home for their own mental health issues. Um, we, we certainly should be doing better. What, why, why do you think that we're just missing it? What, what's, why are we so consumed by, you know, our own stuff and not, and missing the fact that well, there's hundreds, if not thousands of people sleeping on the streets tonight? Yeah, I definitely agree. And I'm not, quite sure the, the direct reason as to why people don't notice, but I think most people just get kind of caught up in their own lives. And especially when you're living in the city, it's easy to sort of blind yourself from the reality of homelessness and, yeah. and really taking in how many people experiencing homelessness you're seeing on a daily basis and how hard their lives are. It's really easy to just go to the other side of the street or, 
kind of walk by them when they ask you to speak with them. But I think it's really important to, to just sort of take it in and, and open ourselves up to that. And when I did that myself, I began to have a huge realization that there's a huge problem of homelessness. And you see it every everywhere you go. And it's really important for us to realize that and to be helping these people. And because we could really be in that situation ourselves. Um, many people are very close and really anything could happen to you to be in that situation. I've met people like their house burnt down, their spouse died, their, their child died, their spouse committed suicide, like anything could happen to bring you into that situation. So I think it's just really important to realize any, any one of us could be there and we should really help each other get out of that situation. Well, Leah Danbach, appreciate that you uh, joined us here this evening. Uh, we'd like to put you on our hot list of people we can have back to talk about this uh, horrible uh, uh, situation that we've been dealing with for decades and decades, and that's people who are living without homes. And in your article, it says here a model that you like to live by, Mother Teresa's article, or writer Teresa, Teresa's line, uh, if you judge people, you don't have time to love them, and I think that's exactly what this is about. Uh, Leah Denbach, uh, a writer, contributor, and seems to be an advocate for the homeless and uh, hoping to have her back on again. When we come back, we're going to talk about stay interviews and uh, what it means to try to keep people employed. And Sometimes it's not money. Often it's not. So stay with me. We'll be right back. Yonabud, 640 Toronto. You're listening to Road to Recovery with Yonabud, only on 640 Toronto. Thank you so much, and welcome back. I can see the end of the road. We're getting there. It's a good thing I got my high beams on because it's kind of dark and chilly and crummy outside. Hopefully you're where you need to be and you're nice and warm and cozy and uh, not wearing your summer clothes because it's freezing. A stay interviews, right? So what's the difference between a stay interview and an exit interview? Real simple. The stay interview is designed to keep you there. The exit interview is designed to make sure you leave and you don't go back, say bad things and you know, don't want to sue the company and so on. And, and, and actually, exit interviews are also designed to make sure that the employer knows what they might have done wrong so they can fix it for next time if you're leaving for some reason related to the company and its ability to perform or not. So our stay interviews are interviews that are one-on-one conversations with employees, uh, what they like about working at the company, what they would do to change or alter the business, uh, the teams that they're working at, what roles they could play and so on. Conversations are used to assess an individual's flight risk um, which is important for business to know if you're going to lose somebody, maybe someone who's key to your to your business. Um, and the conversations can be also used for succession planning if you anticipate that someone's going to be leaving uh, somewhere down the road based on their attitude. So it's kind of looking ahead of uh, the situation with a bit of a crystal ball. These conversations may um, cover many topics uh, like you do in an exit interview, for example, but they're focused differently. Important thing is who conducts the interview as well. So HR, the Human Resources Department, typically conducts the the exit the the uh, exit interview because no one else needs to. But if you want to keep somebody, luckily it it should be uh, their next in line report. Their six what they call a skip level manager, someone who goes up a level from where they are, someone that supervises and perhaps the owner of the company. If it's a small enough company, that would be the smart thing to do if you want to keep people. So you want to make sure that you're talking to people about the, what they're experiencing and the types of stuff they're looking for. As, a, as managers, they have the most control over an individual's day-to-day experience at a company. So it makes sense for them to play a lar- larger role in these what they call retention conversation, employee retention conversations. So an, an interviewee in a stay re- interview is, would be a top-performing employee. In an exit interview would be a departing employee. 
the interviewer uh, in a stay interview would be the employee's manager or skip level manager, upper level, um, or in an exit interview, it's an HR rep, right? And the goal of a stay interview is discover how to improve the employee experience for this specific employee and keep them around longer. If if an exit interview, identify any underlying company team or role issues that could push out other individuals to leave. So here's how you conduct a stay interview. Or if you're in one, you want to make sure they do the following. They want to identify problems. So they want to ask questions, make sure that they're probing questions. They're looking for answers around, you know, problems in the company, problems that perhaps they can get a handle on for the future. They want to find solutions. So they want to be armed with data uh, when you take action to fix things. Uh, so you want to have this information to use when you have a high-level meeting and you're sharing uh, topic conversation is change and alteration of the business model. You want to make sure that there's people around that um, can add to the equation. Talking to staff, I think that you, that employees, employers should talk to employees regularly once a month, uh, either in an open session if it's a small enough business or in teams if you can do that. Just hear how people feel, you know, how they feel about management, how they feel about our ability to meet customer needs and so on and so forth. Things that they would do to change and alter the company. Maybe that should be an anonymous, you know, drop-in box uh, that you can uh, stick a note in and uh, and send off to somebody. So you want to build trust and loyalty. So these interviews are designed to make sure that you have trust and loyalty with your staff, right? So that they understand that there's an opportunity for a long, successful career and that they mean something to you, right? You want to be careful and intentional when you do these, right? The conversations have to be good for morale. You want to stay away from feedback that could be negative about another employee or about somebody who might have left. But you want to do this to retain top talent. You don't want the great, you know, you don't want that guy that can sell $2 million worth of stuff leave because, you know, the guy who runs the company is an idiot and didn't do what he needed to do to make sure this guy could stay home a little longer because his wife was pregnant and having some difficulties during COVID. So, no, 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 you got to get to the office or no, 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 you got to be on a call. You treat them like garbage. These guys, these people, these employees, whoever they are, they're going to look at that, not just the money that they make. So they're looking for, you know, you're looking for opportunities to change and do a better job. How do you lead one of these interviews? you got to kick it off, step-by-step -step instructions. You can get them online. You can learn more about stay interviews uh, by going to uh, different HR sites that can help you with that. Decide who will conduct the interview. That's the first thing, who's going to do it. Identify and reach out to the employees that you want to do this with. You're going to do it with everybody. It's probably a good idea, right? Um, and you want to ask some questions. So there's an organization called Culture Amp. It's a business. They help... Uh, Companies deal with employee and employee needs. Uh, they have a lot of stuff online. Um, they're also a bit annoying when you are reaching out to them as a company because then they get salespeople involved and they're like leaning on you in text messages and emails. So I wasn't crazy about that, but they got some good data, some good information. It, it, it's a business that's designed to help you retain employees. It's an HR support uh, business. It's called Culture uh, Culture Amp. Anyway, what do you like? What the questions would go like this: What do you like most about working here? What do you like the least? If you could change one thing about your team, what would that be? If you could change one thing about the company, what would that be? Do you feel valued at your job? Why? Why? If, if the answer is yes, or why not if the answer is no, which is usually frequent. Uh, do you feel your work is properly recognized at our company? Why or why not? Do you feel the company is invested in your professional growth? Why or why not? How would you rate your work-life balance? Good, bad, you know, maybe that's something you want to ask to see if you can provide them with a little more time off. What do you want to be doing that you're currently not doing? Uh, what are the three most important things that you would accomplish right now if you could? What do you do? What What do you need that's preventing you from reaching your goals? And how can we best support you to achieve those goals? 
So you're going to ask the questions. You've got to be prepared to listen. Oh, my gosh, I just did a whole coaching program with, with somebody, a, a, a middle manager in an organization about listening skills. He, he listed it as one of his, his greatest skills was that he listens. And then, of course, I spent you know, 26 minutes showing him how he needs to learn how to listen because he's not doing it right. You want to take action on the things that they talk about. If they share information with you, use it for good. It's, you know, it's, it's awesome research. Predict the turnover. You're using this to also make sure that you can do this to predict turnover and retain top talent. And if you're one of those top talent people, you want to make sure that the company is reaching out to you and asking you about your retention and the ability for you to stay. You might say to your boss, hey, when are we going to do that retention interview? And they're going to look at you like you got three eyes. And, uh, yeah, but uh, they might wake up and you might get that raise you're looking for. Or who knows? Could work out not so great either. Anyway, I hope it does. I hope everything works out well for you and everyone this week. You're the greatest audience ever. We love you. Uh, remember, hug the one you're with. Show love. Show respect. Show consideration. It's the greatest gift ever. Uh, model good behavior for your children, your employees, and those around you. Just be nice, man. It's not so hard. Just be nice. And when you're nice, the world is nice to you too. So if you're sour, you get sour. If you're sweet, you get sweet. And I'm a really big believer in that. We'll see you next week to share some more stuff. We're getting off the road to recovery right now. We'll be back on next week at 9 o'clock, same time Saturday night. Jonah Bud, 640 Toronto.